Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and nuance behind the headlines. I'm Natasha Mascarenas, and this is our Wednesday show where we niche down to a single person, think about their work and unpack the rest. Today, we're interviewing someone who has built, sold, pivoted, and launched in public a ton. And I like to describe him as a really modern take on what an entrepreneur can look like and be involved with today. So I'm super excited to bring on Ankur Nagpal to the show. Ankur, welcome to Equity. Thank you. It's very flattering. I'm excited to be here. You were one of the first people I spoke to when I joined TechCrunch. And I feel like I've weirdly, I don't know if you caught this, I feel like I've weirdly followed you because we got connected through EdTech. Yep, yep. (laughs) Then Venture Capital. Yep. and, and now fintech, and and yeah. that's exactly your fruit. <laughs> Economic empowerment, right? But but no, it's yeah. been it's been a blast to watch you grow as well. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, give people a little bit of background on who you are as an entrepreneur, because they may see you on Twitter building a fintech platform called Ojo right now, but you have this really interesting history as well. So let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. I've sort of been an entrepreneur my entire professional life. I think. The closest I've ever had to having a job was an internship at Amazon as a software engineer when I was 18 years old. And since then, I've always been down a different entrepreneurial journey. The biggest, I guess, the big meaty entrepreneurial thing I did is I started a company called Teachable when I was 23 years old, ended up selling it when I was 30, 31, spent a couple of years traveling the world while investing, running multiple funds, and then round trip back to starting a new company with Ocho. I feel like I've seen so many people take the route of like selling and then kind of disappearing. Mm-hmm. What made you come back after, you know, you were acquired by Hotmart in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, you traveled for a few years. Could you have kept living like this or what made you want to get back into the entrepreneurial world? Yeah. So I went on what I call my own eat, pray, love journey, you know. Yes. Where'd you go? Tons of places. I lived in Mexico for a while, lived in a surf camp in Brazil for some time. Oh my God. Spent a lot of time with my parents, drove around Eastern Europe for a couple of months, just like different parts of the world. And yeah, I don't know. I feel like we, especially in America, work so hard all the time in anticipation that at some point in the future, we'll retire and then do what we want. And I'm like, cool, I can do whatever I want right now. Let me actually go do that. Yeah. It was a really important process. I think I found a lot of things that made me happy. But at the end of it, I realized I was missing the sort of meaning I got from building cool things with cool people. And after the burnout or whatever faded, I was really, really excited to, you know, get back and just build things with people I like. Yeah. As I reverse engineer your career and assume I know what was going through your head, I think of three like moments that feel especially interesting during today's topic, which is building in public because you do a lot of it. And I think first really was, and where I would like to start is deciding to sell Teachable. It Mm -hmm. was this growing business. You had an awesome exit. But what did that moment now looking back influence about the way you build? I think it came at just the right time because in the summer of 2019, right? So the offer came in the fall of 2019. The summer of 2019 is the first time I consciously started feeling a little bit tired. It's the first time the day-to-day started feeling like, okay, the company was growing, but a lot of the things I was doing was no longer giving me energy. I spent more time in meetings and managing people and all of that. And we were never looking to sell the company. Hotmart came in inbound and it was almost set up like this like blind date by a private equity fund. They're like, why don't you guys get dinner? See if you like each other. (laughs) And I really, really liked the team and the people. So it happened at the right time. It was still a very hard decision at the time. The number one thing in my mind is, am I being selfish? Like, is it because of like, 
my own personal energy that I'm like jeopardizing the future of other people and all of that. But then as soon as I had the conviction that what I was doing was in the best interest of our product, our team and everyone, at that point, it became a no brainer. And for me, that turning point is when I went to Brazil, spent time with the team. And again, for me, all of these decisions come down to people. And I just had conviction after that, that these were good people. And if there were good people, I'm like, okay, you know, the company's in good hands. Yeah. Like you said, you were only starting to get tired a little bit before they came knocking. Mm -hmm. So it was good timing. But I guess at that point, in tech, I feel like the conversation around every company is going to be an IPO was probably much bigger than it is today. I think today we're seeing a lot more people talk about acquisitions being this awesome way to leave. But at the time, I I guess I wonder what it was like. Like, how was it even received when you told people within your network, your mentors even, that you were looking to sell and maybe not do the building thing for a little bit? Mm -hmm. I remember at the time, it was a very difficult decision. And when I talked to people, and the good thing is I had good investors are like, look, at the end of the day, it's your decision. So I spent a lot of time sort of reflecting on it. But the price they were offering was fair. And in my mind, I didn't want the best possible price. I was not also like running an auction where I sold the company the highest bidder. I just wanted conviction that what they were offering me was a good enough price for the people they were. And very soon I validated that. And, you know, the decision, it took a while, but I'm a big believer in like when I'm making a decision, am I making the best decision with the data I have available to be at the time? You know, it could change in the future. And after going to see them in Brazil, I had conviction in that. And from that point on, it was just logistics until March 2020, when we went into lockdown and sold the company at the exact same time. Oh my God. Yeah, that moment, right? I mean, yeah. and I, I think like one question I always think about with people who end up talking out loud about their experiences is when do you go from like experiencing it to being able to talk about it? That was a hard, that was the hardest thing because yeah. I, it's like I had this like massive secret that I had to keep from... <laughs> Almost the entire company for four months. That oh was probably, God. that was, it was soul crushing. Cause like, again, I mean, you can probably tell my build in public. I like tell people everything. I'm like, you know, I don't really, I find it very hard to have secrets from people. So here was this massive secret that we had to keep from the company. So I was very, very relieved when we could finally talk about it. But it was four months of just like straddling the line between not being able to talk about it, yeah. operating the company as if it's not going to happen. Cause with any deal, they can fall apart at any point. So you always, you know, operate like it's not going to happen. So it was a moment of relief when we got there just because living two lives was not very fun. Oh my God. Yeah. We just recorded an episode about mental health for founders Mm -hmm. recently. And I know in some ways, like someone might be listening to us being like, oh my God, like you exited. Like that seems like it's perfect and lucky you. But there is this flip side of when you're in charge of so many people and you built a culture of transparency. How do you go between both of those things? I feel like if you're good at it, it's also kind of weird (laughs) if you're like very good at, at hiding things. Yeah. I mean, again, a lot of it came down to that. Like, I also believe that a lot of what makes someone a great CEO is something that I think you also, you have to be like mildly sociopathic. And there's a lot of shit that I just like struggled with when it came to being CEO, because it would be against my values as a person. Yeah. And that was just hard to deal with. So for me, my stress level went down tremendously when I stopped having to run the company. Selling the company made no difference. But when I stopped running it is when I'm like, this actually feels empowering and freeing and all of that. And yeah, but even then it made me realize that the early days of running the company was like, I could be congruent to who I was. Yeah. But when you're hundreds of people, it gets a lot harder. How did Venture challenge that realization? Because you launched, you know, Vibe Capital, we covered it. Mm-hmm. It was a $70 million fund closed in 2021. Yep. So during the height of the boom, you know, take me from the version of Uncle that just stopped running this company to the version of him that started a fund. 
Yep. So I started investing in March or April 2020 when we were locked down and it felt like with infinite time. There was nothing you could do for fun. You're we're all in front of our computers all day. It was so unwell. <laughs> yeah. It was an interesting time to start investing. I enjoyed a lot about it. I think the novelty was great because you're so focused on one thing being an operator that looking at lots of different things was kind of freeing. Two, I felt like it was a task that you could do in an interrupt-driven way. I could be in mm. other places. You do it in bite-sized chunks as opposed to running a company where you have to go in and you know do the work every single day. And it felt kind of cool to just be able to talk to some of the smartest people in the world and, you know, do that. So initially investing felt really great when I was frankly burnt out to a crisp and, you know, could travel and do other things while investing. But eventually after a year and a half, it started feeling a little bit unfulfilling where this is cool, but it feels like a hobby. It feels like a thing people do on the sides. Yeah, I'm too young. I have too many good years ahead of me to like make this my entire thing, right? <laughs> like, so that's how I started feeling. I think a lot of like founders during the time where you were closing your fund were doing the same thing as you. Do you feel like you're joined in that feeling of it felt like a 2021, maybe part of 2022 sort of hobby or interesting season, but it's not currently a focus for a lot of founders right now? Because I remember there being so much controversy over it. Should <laughs> a so founder much. run a VC fund and should a VC fund? Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> I mean, Founders investing in other founders is not new. I think what changed at that time is AngelList and stuff made it easy for everyone to start a fund. So all of a sudden you had these angel investors becoming fund investors. And I still think founders make very good investors. Where I've sort of changed my opinion a bit is I think if you're an early stage founder, it's really, really hard to also be an investor. And I'm starting to think that if you do that, at least for me, I couldn't do it without my company suffering. I think my fund will be fine. I think I can be a very successful investor while running a company, but my company will suffer. I think there comes a point, maybe year three, year four or something, where it gets a lot easier when the systems are in place. Yeah. But when you just start a company, you're fighting for survival in a lot of ways, right? You're trying to create something where nothing existed, and it's very hard when you're distracted. In your case, did having a formal venture fund help when you decided to eventually start Ocho, or did it feel like something you had to constantly explain to investors? You know, hey, I have a full business, so to speak, but I'm, I'm starting a new one. Yeah. I would say it was there's positives and negatives. I mean, initially with Ocho, I was like, let me just incubate a company from the fund and get someone else to run it. Right. And I soon realized that you have an adverse selection with a lot of incubators like that, where the founders that would take that deal would be founders for whom it's their best option and therefore they may not be the best founders. I'm like, well, I guess I gotta do this myself. Sure. And that was sort of my journey into doing this. And you know, once I started running it, I got super into it. And I'm like, okay, you know, to do a company well is so all consuming. Let me put the fund on the back burner so I can really double down on building a business. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I wrote a piece a while ago, interviewed you for it, mm-hmm. which was titled, Our Solo GP Screwed. And I it got some interesting response because I think most people, you know, had talked to me on background about how Zolo GPs are having this crazy time of just pause or even just like walking away. And the other half are like, well, you know, if you're good, you'll always be able to raise. Yep. And I would love like, I guess like, you know, the reason we talked about that was because you had announced that you were going to shrink your fund size by roughly 43%, cancel some capital calls, and kind of just like do more with less. Now that it's been almost, I think, a month since you've announced that, I would love to do a check-in. What has it been like since shifting the strategy on Vibe Capital? It's been great. Almost every single investor is very grateful. Nice. Pretty much none of them are putting money back into venture, which is very interesting, right? A lot of, because a lot of fund managers message me being like, oh, you know, if your investors have extra money, send them our way. Almost none of them are putting more into venture. I think they're all looking at this as a way to sort of reallocate capital because they did that in 2021. 
Yeah. And I think even my team at Ocho probably took it as a positive signal that like, look, our founder is, you know, like doubling his commitment to the business we're running and not investing. So from that perspective, it's been great. I'll still invest, but it's more, again, this thing I'm doing on the side versus yeah. versus something I'm spending a lot of time on. On a personal note, because I think like what you said, what brought you into venture was this idea of getting to talk to smart people and be a part of this whole ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Has that been hard for you? It seems like you're someone that likes, I guess being a founder is like a million jobs in one. But I think you like having your eggs in a few different baskets at the same time. Yep. So does it at all feel like you're walking away from that for this moment in time? Or do you still feel like you're spread across? No, because I also have all the companies already invested in, right? I'm not going to kind yeah. of throw them to the side. So I still already have this amazing community of founders that I'm working with. A lot of whom have now ended up investing in my company as well. So it's really weird. We started with me investing in them. Now they've invested. Yeah. So I already have that, that community. And so I, it so far felt totally fine. And the other thing that towards the end of investing started getting a little frustrating is you ultimately feel a little bit helpless, especially as a founder where you're fully in control with investing. Very often you'll you know invest some money and then kind of just chill. And you can try and get founders, give them advice, but at the end of the day, it's their company. Yeah. So you do feel a little helpless sometimes versus now with my own company where I feel fully empowered, where I can actually you know try and make the outcome I want happen. That's interesting because it, it is like a quieter moment. I just, I feel like an, another discourse I've seen a ton is like investors asking for something as simple as memos and investment mm -hmm. memos. And you do really good ones, by the way. Appreciate that. <laughs> you, you do good ones. Um, but yeah, the communication. And that's kind of an underlying aspect of this show, which is like, what is your kind of philosophy or even guiding principles on how to communicate with all the different stakeholders that you're working with today? Like, let's maybe start with just how you talk to just like the broad universe of tech Twitter. Like, yep. what do you choose what to tweet and what not to tweet? And then we, maybe we can refine it with your other <laughs> other people you care about. Yeah. So on Twitter, I honestly just spend so much time there consuming content that the creation came naturally. And in general, towards the end of running Teachable, I started sharing more and more information about our business. It just, okay. you know, was authentic to who I was. But I kept getting pushback from other people, from the executive team, from other people within the company, because that's not a culture they believed in or liked or whatever. Mm -hmm. But as I transitioned outside of teachable, I was like, okay, starting over. Now I can be much more transparent and truly sort of authentic to who I am. Yeah. I don't think everyone should build in public. I think you should think about it as an extension of your personality. Again, very extreme example, Steve Jobs, Apple, they were phenomenal at being secretive. I would just suck at that, right? So I'm yeah. not saying you have to do it. Like there are people who would be very good at it and people for whom it's not congruent to their personality. For me, I think companies are an extension of your personality. So do that. But even at Teachable, I wanted to make our monthly investor updates public. I couldn't. Yeah. But this time starting over, I'm like, let me do it publicly because I think the upsides far outweigh the downsides. Yeah. Talk to me about what the upsides are because I think a lot of times we hear building in public and we think of it as someone, you know, candidly, who has the privilege to be able to build in public. You have a great exit in your history. And so, okay, you can afford to, but can every founder do that? No. Yep. So yeah. What, what I, could, I could argue the, I could argue the opposite. I don't think it's true, but if I wanted to argue the opposite, I would be like, it's more embarrassing for me to fail in public because I already mm. have this track record and therefore like, it's, yeah, there's a greater fear of failure in some ways because people yeah. tend to assume you. You have an audience. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't think that's true, but it's just, I could make that argument if I wanted to. I think it comes with upsides and downsides. For me, the upsides are one, you don't have to be a public self and a private self. You can sort of, like I've always in life found it very hard to give different people differing levels of like information. Here you're sort of, you know, laying it all out there and super easy. Two, I think it's motivating for the team as well. Like every other person feels vested in this. Yeah. Three, it's frankly good marketing, right? Like, you know, everyone now knows what you're doing and they're, vested and following along. And four, I try to be a good example for my founders, a lot of whom 
frankly, like I was shocked by how few founders send reliable monthly updates. I thought it's something everyone did. Yeah. I'm shocked by how few people did that, which is why even when we have a not great month, I'm, you know, in my, I'm always going to call it out in my updates. Like even last month, I was like, oh, like, you know, revenue was, revenue kind of sucked. And I'll say that, but a lot of other founders go the other way where they sugarcoat it, where they're like, you know, you look at the numbers, they're bad numbers, but they will be like, oh, here's why it was an excellent month anyways. Yeah. And I'm just trying to build, I think bringing candor to these communications actually builds trust, even if it's not a great month or whatever. I mean, as a journalist, I cannot agree more. Yeah. Um, it's why I like interview you because you don't bullshit. I think is the flip side that you hear from founders, is it just being worried that people won't want to back them or be with them anymore? Or is it something deeper? Is there other bad advice that's being given in Silicon Valley that's stopping people from being open? I think for some companies, they actually have a lot of privileged information. For us, we don't. So it's fine. But the theoretical risk is, oh, what if my competitors find out? I personally am fine with my competitors seeing all of this. But again, that's why it's sort of an individual judgment thing. Okay. The other thing that's beneficial that I forgot to mention is it really helps in building a relationship whereby I don't know who will lead our funding round three years from now, but there's a good chance that on my updates today. So as a result, when it's time to raise money, they have now followed the journey for one year, two years, three years, and there's a track record you can follow. And that's something we did at Teachable, where every round after the first one came from someone I put on my investor update preemptively. Interesting. And then when it came time to raise, I could just go to them and they already had like this track record to follow. Interesting. Has it ever burned you? Like, Has it ever not worked well? All the bad things have happened. Like people have sent it to competitors. People have like <laughs> tried to, like all the bad things have happened as well. But it's like, to me, I, I think of it similarly as like being trusting with people in your life by default. Can it burn you? Absolutely. But I think the upside of being trusting outweighs the downsides. Not saying there's no downsides, but yeah, I just liken it to there's more good things that come from it than bad, but there are downsides for sure. Yeah. Well, and I and I think at some point you had said something around resetting founder expectations, both mm-hmm. like on what fundraising looks like today, but also the realities of building a business. Has there been anything new? I don't know. I, I guess I would love like your pulse on what the downturn feels like for founders today. Like, do you feel like they're becoming more vulnerable or less vulnerable in your network at least? So to be quite candid, I think this downturn is no different than how things used to be and how things kind of always was. Like I remember while raised fundraising for Teachable, it was really hard. And like people like founders for a while went through this moment of like, oh, all these investors want to invest. Who do I accept money from? Yeah. Back in the day, anyone that said yes, you like wanted to get them to like close the money because they may go away. So I think honestly, we've just reset back to how things used to be, which is fundraising is really, really, really difficult. I don't think it's any worse than how it always was, excluding the last three years, which I think, you know, is sort of the more atypical thing. Yeah. Beyond that, I think it's gotten easier to hire. Okay. Capital has become scarce. Talent has become abundant. You know, what you're saying too, it it makes me think that you didn't do this on purpose, but when you started Vibe Capital and now you're able to incubate and have some capital Mm -hmm. you can put into the startup. Is that something other people can replicate that are listening? Or is that kind of a one-on-one situation? I think if people have a fund, they absolutely can. You know, and I've privately talked to a bunch of people who have our founders, became fund managers, start thinking about starting a company. They absolutely can. From a legal perspective, we had to get consents from all of our fund investors because on paper, it's like, oh, this is a massive sort of conflict of interest. And I had to make clear to them that yes, it is a conflict of interest, but it's a conflict of interest in their favor. The fund invested at much better terms than had I gone out and raised money. So it was, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Well, let, let's let's end with our last section, which is about Ocho. Before mm-hmm. we get into the philosophy of how you're building your current thing, Uncle, tell everyone what Ocho is. Yeah, absolutely. Ocho exists to help business owners build wealth. So we think most entrepreneurs and business owners spend so long thinking about their business that we help them focus on their personal finances. So we do that through education as well as building financial products for them. I want to hear kind of how 
you are approaching things differently this time. What's the biggest change you're making between starting Teachable? I guess like year one of Teachable and year one of Ocho. Has it been one year yet also? No, it's, it's this is the sixth month. So I'm yeah, like, it's I think, been 17 years yeah, since you started yeah, Ocho. Yeah. <laughs> I think doubling down to the things that have worked. So again, yeah. we're f- keeping the team so small that there's a chance. I mean, we grew to nine people early on, but there's a chance... In all of this year, we hire zero people. In fact, I would try my best to hire zero people. We'll see if we absolutely have to. And I think it's super important because there's so much more small teams can get done that we're trying to be very, very intentional about it. So when it comes to compensation, for instance, what I'm telling people is we're being more generous than we would otherwise with the idea that like we're expecting more from each person just so we can create a very tight-knit team. So that's been a very intentional decision. We've been trying to work as fast as possible in a way that like as a startup, I think it's your only competitive advantage. Like your incumbents have so many other things that like speed is all we have. So really reinforcing that. And yeah. I saw something interesting, which was like you aren't spending money on any paid marketing. No money on paid marketing, big freelancer budget. Because again, we want to keep the team size small. So if you like, let's say we want a writer for a campaign, we'll hire the writer for the campaign versus hiring a full-time writer because then you'll need two writers and three writers and so forth. And just being very, very intentional about that. And still investing a lot in like culture. Like we had a team retreat where we took everyone to Mexico City and like we go to the office every day, like lots of in-person time, lots of like team building stuff. Okay, got it. You know, a question someone mentioned to me, they said, what is their organic method to acquire users What's worked, what's failed, and what's been the biggest learning there? Because you're in fintech, which is in a, a crazy sector to be in, especially when you think about paid marketing. And people are a little bit like holding on to their money differently, I think, today versus yep. a year ago. Yeah. So, I mean, so right now, again, we're, we're small. We have 300 plus paying customers. So it's mostly come through our own channel. So we have someone on SEO. We decided to invest in SEO before we had a product. It'll take a year for it to work out. But I guarantee you in a few months, we'll be the number one ranking site for all of our major niche keywords. Two, obviously, I'm doing creator stuff myself, but I've given other people on our team licenses to build their personal brands. I think, yeah. yes, we'll do company brand stuff, but people connect with people. So let's you know each build our personal brands and funnel traffic back. Three, we're partnering with a lot of fintech creators as well. Like I think you saw we have an online event coming up in the end of this month. We're hoping to have 20,000 attendees because we're having this entire bunch of creators, all of whom are promoting this. Uh, So we'll keep experimenting with different channels. But I think the state of fintech got to a point where companies were paying too much to acquire customers that were like, we're not going to play these games, you know. Yeah, well, it's almost a signal that you're not out there yelling about it. You're like, kind of like, come trust me when you're ready. Yep. About the product. Yeah, exactly. I'm thinking a lot about brand and especially like I was thinking about like succession, not just because of the show, but just because I don't think a lot of founders think about it, especially at the stage that you're at. Like you don't need to think about what happens to the company if you disappear or change your mind on things. But is it something you're thinking about, like how important your brand is for the success of the company? Or is it something that you're okay? I don't know. How intentional are you being that you are not the company? Is that okay that you are the company? Yeah, I mean, I think... Like a lot of creators struggle with this because creators have like no succession plan at all. Like they are the entire brand. Yes. And I think you're keeping those separate. I've also been very clear with the team that at Teachable, I had so much ego about being CEO. This time, if you're three, four, five, I don't feel like I'm the best person to lead the company. I will absolutely let someone else, you know, step up and lead the company. So a lot, I think that's the advantage of being a second time founder. You're like more chill about stuff. You have more conviction. Yeah. A lot of times the first time around, I just thought I didn't know anything. So you have this like insecurity and then you like look at what all these other role models of yours do. And then you realize no one knows anything. And then you feel more comfortable (laughs) doing what you're already doing. Uh, 
That's where I'm at right now. Honestly, yeah. I mean, there's so much like intimidation that exists in the way we work. And I'm just like, wait a second. You all just shot your shot. And that's how you got to where you are. Exactly. So frankly, now I'm just more secure doing the things I would have done the first time. And I'm just more authentic to who I am. And it just feels lighter and easier and more fun when you're doing it that way. I mean, totally. And it's like, when you say it, it feels obvious, but I I don't think it is. I don't think a lot of founders see themselves as separate from their companies because that's how they think success has to be. But I like what you said about it's something you can revisit in three to five years. Yep. Because yeah, I mean, I, I still think it's super controversial if someone was to, I just talked to someone the other day who had left taking care of their family, but came back and was like, actually, you guys are doing great. I'll just be a chief business officer instead. And I was like, yeah, huh. I mean, there's no playbook being written about that. And I would just love to see more of that conversation being had. Yeah, I think it's why one of the reasons I'm very public about it so that other people also feel like it's okay. Like I remember, for instance, I don't know, Alex McCall, a friend of mine, he stepped down from being CEO of Clearbit. And at the time, I was like, wow, you can do that. But the fact that he did that and was public about it made it okay for me to start thinking about it. So I'm like, if I'm public about it, it's probably someone else out there who may also feel trapped where they feel like they have to be CEO, but, you know, honestly don't want to. So yeah, I think talking about these things publicly definitely helps. It definitely does. And completely off topic, but back to what you said earlier on trying to not hire anyone this year. Someone was trying to sell me on this idea that we're going to see our first two-person company unicorn in the Mm -hmm. next few years. And I'm curious what you think on that sort of leanness when building a company. Like, are you saying that you're not going to hire someone just for this year? Or do you feel like there's a world where, where Ocho stays small forever? I think we'll want to stay small relative to our scale forever, but it's not going to be a specific number of people pegged to like under X or Y. I think relative to how big the business is by revenue. And the reality is we're in a regulated industry. So I think what we're going to see, we're already starting to see is like, we'll be able to innovate really fast, but any industry that's regulated will be held back by the government, right? You can only go as fast as the government is willing to sort of go. So that's a stuff that we'll just, you know, you can talk about all the AI stuff, but as you know, until the SEC is approving things fast enough, you're always going to be sort of held back. Oh my God. And with that, somehow it took 30 minutes to get to the AI conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really proud of us. I don't know how we did that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's end with lightning round, which is kind of our lighter, our lighter fun uh, side of the conversation, (laughs) which I'm telling you not to be stressed about, but you should totally be stressed about. This is the most anxiety inducing part of the conversation (laughs) for me. So let's, let's do it. No, they're actually the kindest questions. Number one, someone asked us on Instagram, they want to know the story behind your tattoo on your arm. Yeah, this one, this was actually, you know how people end up having COVID decisions where some people it's dyeing their hair pink for some people. Yes. For me, this was June 2020. I'd wanted to get, I'd wanted to get a tattoo for the longest time, but then we went into lockdown and it sold the company. So I was actually in Austin, Texas. Oh my God. And Love said. Yeah, and it was, yeah, it was, <laughs> honestly, it was something that I, I guess we don't have video Yeah, for this. this is the worst thing to ask about actually, because no one can see it. So can you describe it for people really quick? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a band tattoo that I could build upon. So it's two bands, a thicker band and a lighter band with the idea that it gives me a lot of optionality if I I want to do it up or down. And then I got a douchier tribal shoulder tattoo after that. So it's definitely been become a bit of a thing. <laughs> All right. Well, so vote on equity for Unker's next tattoo. And maybe yeah, you'll yeah. see it in the next year <laughs> if it's that easy. The next question is, what would you be doing if you weren't in tech and building? So my number one dream at first was to become a professional cricketer. As soon as my athletic ambitions were were, <laughs> were squashed, no. I fantasize about being a writer, like not, not a tech writer, oh. like like I still think I want to do it at some point, just like write probably really bad fiction, but like live somewhere, write fiction. Um, I've always like loved writing since I was a kid. I think that would be, that would be a cool career. Oh my God. 
You were not the first person. Or long-form sports journalism specifically. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Well, I know more about the former than the latter, but that yeah. is um, super cool. Yeah. You joined my writer's group. I just started a fiction writer's group. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. And you're not the first person to come on Equity who's talked to me about writing ambitions. It makes me mm-hmm. feel like the, like the most like high EQ people in tech are also <laughs> writers. And that's just my unbiased perspective. Yeah. And it's like when I look at my artistic abilities, I can't draw, I can't paint, I can't sing. Like writing is the one thing <laughs> I enjoy doing. So Yes, same. Yeah. Okay, we'll end with two. We'll start with what's the worst advice that you've ever gotten? This can be personal or professional. The worst advice I've ever gotten was my mom telling me to get a job at Facebook. Like there was a point when all my entrepreneurial things were going nowhere. And she's like, beta, like I think you should, (laughs) you know, I think it's time. I think it's time for you to actually, you know, buckle down. And a credit to my dad who talked her and me out of it. He's like, look, we, I spent all my life like in this like middle class, like point of, I couldn't start my own thing so that my children would have the opportunity to. Yeah. So go ahead and do that. Oh my God. We've all had like a beta one moment yeah. Mo- yeah. conversation. Yeah. Try having you work at a place called TechCrunch. <laughs> yeah. <are> like, <laughs> yeah. Crunch what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I believe that. Um, yeah. No, that's amazing. Um, let's end with the best advice that you've ever gotten. Uh, very stereotypical person to get advice from. But I remember when I was 19 or 20, I met Naval for the first time in San Francisco, I think at probably the Phil's on like 4th and right yes. by the ballpark. Yes. And I remember him pushing me to think bigger with the idea that like, I think his exact words were, it doesn't matter whether you're running this coffee shop or you're the you know running Starbucks. The level of like stress is probably roughly the same, like in terms of how big you should think. So, you know, always be the person like, you know, go be the CEO of Starbucks instead of running this coffee shop was. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. All right. Well, on that perfect note, Ankur, thank you so much for coming on Equity. Tell people where they can find you, find Ocho, find that conference that you mentioned if it's open to the public yeah. in any way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Ocho is at Ocho.com. When you go there, you'll see a link to sign up for Independent Money or Conference. I'm on Twitter as Ankur Nagpal, my full name, and on Instagram as Ankur N-A. Perfect. And I am on Twitter at Nmask underscore the worst Twitter handle in the yeah. TechCrunch staff. And then on Instagram at Natasha, the reporter. Thanks again for coming on the show. Everyone else, we will chat with you on Friday. Bye. Equity Wednesdays are hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter, Natasha Mascarenas. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back next week. 